it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 486 for May 19th, 2017, and I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. This week is Programming by Stealth, episode 35 of, let's see, of X. I don't want to get that wrong, Bart, right? Right. Does that mean we have to do 24 more series so we've covered all the alphabet? I guess so. That's what we got to do. Well, we're both really excited. Um, I successfully was able to split the Chit Chat Across the Pond feed into three different feeds. There's still going to be the Chit Chat Across the Pond feed that you've all come to know and love. There's going to be one that's, uh, or there is one that is just programming by stealth. And there's one that's just Chit Chat Across the Pond light, which are the non-propeller beanie episodes. Cool. So... uh, yeah, people are uh, really excited on both sides. The the light people are excited and the programming nerds are excited and everybody's happy. So and uh, I, I just I felt like it was getting a little uneven or maybe had been for 35 weeks here. Right? <laughs> cool. OK, great. Yeah. So, so uh, just to let you know. Yeah, you can find it in iTunes. You can find it in I know it's in Overcast. I haven't checked today to see if it's in Downcast yet. It, the the tools take a little while to crawl iTunes and get propagated. But uh, if you're looking for the feed yourself, you can go to podfeed.com, click on the podcast you want, and the URLs will be there for the copying or the uh, uh, Apple podcast links will be there. I presume okay. those of us who are already subscribed to everything don't have to change anything. It's only those who that, want to go to one or the other. That's correct. Good, good point. Good point. Cool. Then I don't have to do anything. This is easy. Okay, good. (laughs) That was the goal was to make it easy for everybody, especially me. It's not going to be hard as long as I remember to do one extra step when we're done. All right. Let's kick in, Bart. What are we doing this week? Okay. So it feels like forever since we recorded one of these. I think it's been three weeks. Yeah, because we're a week late, but we're going to be two weeks in a row now. Yes. So we're going to... Start by doubling back to where we were last, which was testing with QUnit. Um, so we'll have a quick look at uh, my uh, parts of my sample solution to the challenge, which was to write some tests for some code we wrote together months and months and months and months and months ago, way early on in the series. Um, and then I'm going to teach you one little trick in QUnit that will come in useful. Um, Actually, it'll come in useful very quickly. You're going to use it in your challenge for this week. Uh, I'll say quickly it'll come in useful. Uh, but it, it, it's a very simple little thing that is actually nice to know. Uh, then I and, wanna... and are you also going to tell a parable about how QUnit helped you? I most certainly am, yes. Good, good. Okay. Um, then we move on to HTML forms where we, we because we've been doing QUnit, we haven't really been doing our two-track tr- two approach. So I want to get back into the HTML half of things. So we're going to look at text input. So we've done checkboxes, we've done radio buttons, we've done button buttons, uh, and obviously the basic concept of a form itself. But we haven't looked at text input, which is a fairly important piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then I'm going to introduce a new project that we're going to be working on and basically we're not going to write a single line of code in that new project i am instead setting you a challenge to get things going um and one of the inputs to that challenge is a test suite hmm okay spend some time writing so that that's that's our plan for today so i guess we'll get stuck in with the first part which is the solution or my sample solution to pbs 34 challenge because there i always say there's no such thing as a you know a definitive authoritative correct answer because every programming challenge has many possible answers and i think for test suites that's infinitely more true because they're 
every test you there are an infinite amount of possible inputs to anything so arguably no test suite is complete unless it's infinitely large um (laughs) and i think everyone can quibble about where you draw the line and i think it's just up to everyone to draw their own line um so we were we started off together in the 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 previous installment writing some tests for bartificer.link toolkit which is an api that i open sourced quite a while ago inspired by this series so basically we were working on stuff related to it together on this series and then i gave it a little bit of spit and polish and threw it up as an open source doodad on my github uh, but i have no a lot of suite. spit and polish yeah i think it was quite spitty and polishy i think that's a compliment <laughs> um so we've done some functions together and the main thing that i had left as the assignment was to write as many more tests as you felt would be useful. So basically, as long as you felt you were learning, keep going. And once you felt you were just wasting your time, stop. But I did say that the place you should start was with the function mark external. And my reasoning for, for, for that choice is because the key thing I wanted people to practice is, to, is the usage of this thing called the fixture. So as a quick reminder, the fixture is just a, it's just a div in the test suite with a special ID, QUnit minus fixture. And what QUnit does is every time it's about to start a test, so the last thing it does before actually starting a test is it resets the fixture to exactly how it was when the page loaded. And so every time a test runs, it has like a completely fresh copy of the fixture. So your test can muck about with the fixture all at once, and then you know that the next test is going to get a clean copy of the fixture. And so in this case, we want to test a function whose job in life it is to alter the document. It adds images into the page. So that's why you want this thing where the fixture gets reset every time. So in the fixture, we have some links. And those links are a a medley of links. Some of those (laughs) links go to some places and some go to other places. And some have a target and some have a rel. It's just a nice mixture of different types of links. And that means when you call this function mark external, that you go through that whole list of links, find all of the ones that have a target of underscore blank, and only those that have a target of underscore blank and stick an icon after the link. And right. so what we what our testing should then do is to make sure that all the links that should have an icon have an icon and all the links that shouldn't have an icon don't have an icon. And maybe also, so the function also takes some options, like you can optionally specify some extra CSS classes that should be inserted. The documentation says that certain CSS classes will be inserted. Okay, the document says that. Is that true? So you have a few more tests to do, but the basic, the most important test to do is, does it actually stick the icons in it promises to do? Because that's that's sort of the function's raison d'etre. And it's all about the fixture, and that's why I chose it as the one to do for your initial starting point. So whenever you're dealing with a function that is going to alter the DOM, you're basically, the first thing you do inside your test is you call the function that's going to mess with the DOM. Then you write your assertions, and then your test is over. So remember, the fixture gets set after each test, not after each assertion. So your test starts by mucking up the fixture. Then you check to see that it was mucked up in exactly the way you want it to be mucked up, and then your test finishes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Okay, so I have basically copied and pasted in. Uh, okay, so my approach to testing this function was I was going. I wrote a test, which tests the function with all the default arguments. And in there, I did most of my work. 
And then I wrote a separate test for each of the possible options and only checked that that option did what it was supposed to do. And so because we have more than one test, I collected it all together into a module so that I have a module for all of my Mark external tests. Okay. And that's what's pasted into the show notes. Uh, and is also available right. elsewhere, which we'll link to in a moment. So my very first test is extremely straightforward. Does the function exist? A little one-liner, a.strict equal type of name of function, expected value function. There we go. That's right. That's that's uh, absolute boilerplate. That's pretty much the only one I'm good at so far, Bart. <laughs> I, could, I could do that one reliably. So the next one then is where we start to, to, to look at bigger things, which is default options is what I call the next test. And so... What we need to do here is we need to check that everything that should have got an icon got an icon and everything that didn't get an icon didn't get an icon. And that it involves repetition because you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And repetition, in my mind, means loops. So the very first thing I did was I read through my entire fixture and I noted the IDs of every link that should get an icon. And I shoved them into an array called IDs underscore must underscore have underscore icon. And then... I took all of the okay, ones. Okay, and the way and the way I identified the IDs were the ones that had TB in them because those are the ones that you you knew up front that you had created target equals underscore blank on those. Sure, but I, actually, to be honest, I just looked for target equals underscore blank. I'd forgotten I was so clever. Well, but no, you your your IDs must have icon or RL underscore TB underscore sure, NR. No, no, you it's a true, it's a true fact that they all have TBs in the ID, but there's. I found them by looking, f by searching the document for target equals underscore blank. I didn't find them. by Which looking. is actually better than searching for it by the ID because you could have incorrectly ID'd them. Absolutely. And I wouldn't put that past me. <laughs> okay. All right. So you've got it. You've got an array of all the IDs that must have an icon. And then under it is the inverse of that array. Basically, everything that didn't show up on the first list is in the second list. Okay. Which is IDs no target because they have no target of underscore blank. Okay. So then, now that I have my two arrays, I can have some sort of idea of how many assertions to expect. So then we have our a.expect line, which is the length of the first array plus the length of the second array plus five, because there's five other tests after the loops. Okay. So then I call the function on the fixture. So I actually say birdfisser.linktoolkit.markexternal on the fixture. Wait, 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 back up. You said a.expect, and then mm -hmm. you said IDs must have icon.length. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, because there's one test for each target equals underscore blank, one for everyone that isn't. Plus five, gotcha. Okay. Yes, exactly. And that five was incrementing as you were writing tests, right? Absolutely, yes. I didn't okay. know. Initially, that just said one length plus the other length, and then as I wrote more tests later, that number got changed <laughs> until it was correct. That's okay. how it always works. That's, I like the way, that way of doing it. Okay. So then I call the function on the fixture. So now we have all of the icons should be there in theory. So now we're ready to test. So first off, we loop through the must have. And so the fixture contains an unordered list of list items. And each list item contains exactly one link. So that's the structure of the fixture, which you can see in the HTML code. So it's a UL containing LIs, and each LI contains exactly one A tag. And that's important because that makes it easy to figure out whether or not an icon was inserted. Because what you care about is how many images have, have appeared inside this list icon or this list item. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And we know the structure, so we can easily get from the link to the list item because the list item is the link's parent. So we have a little bit of jQuerying to do, which is practice because we, while well, we did cover this together many moons ago, 
it is many moons ago because we record two episodes a month and it's like 10 or 15 episodes ago so that makes it half a year ago at least yeah so uh for the audience bart and i worked on this part a little bit together because i had no idea how to approach this and it wasn't obvious to me that the that the the icon was actually a sibling of the a tag so it was important to know that the 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 icon wasn't inside the url it was outside of the url right yes yes so that that knowing that it was a sibling meant it was interesting to look at what does the parent know yes right precisely information about the parent if you looked for images inside the link you would have found none because the yeah. image isn't inside the link, it's directly... Yeah, I after. found all of those. <laughs> all of the none of them. Yes. So, uh, to, to make Actually, things... I wrote my, my test so badly, they all passed. <laughs> Which is a dangerous thing. Indeed. Now, I wrote this code a little bit more, more verbosely than I normally would. Um, if I was writing this for myself, I probably wouldn't have broken it out into as many variables, but it's clearer what's going on here. So I start by creating a variable that's just going to store a jQuery object that represents the link under test. So I say var $a equals, and then we use the dollar function to find the link. And we have its ID. So all we say is the string pound concatenated with the ID, and we shove all that into the dollar function. So that will give us our jQuery object representing the link we wish to test. But like you said, the link doesn't contain the image, but we now have a reference to the link. So uh, you have a variable there. It says var $a equals dollar uh, parentheses quote hashtag plus. That's your concatenation. Then it mm-hmm. says AID, but mm-hmm. you haven't defined AID. Uh, yes, I have. I define it in the line straight above it because it is the name I give the first argument. Function. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Function AID. So that's the first, or whatever gets passed to a first, and that'll be the first thing in this uh, in this array. Well, each so that function is going to happen once for everything in the array. The first and and each time the ID under test will be known as AID. Okay. Gotcha. So the first time it runs, it'll be RL underscore TB underscore NR. Mm-hmm. Second time okay. around the loop, ALTBNR. Third time through the loop, gotcha. ASTB, got got so on and so forth. So okay. for each. Okay. Um, so how does how did you? There's a way to make this bloody thing go into multiple to, to make. Oh, it's the it's the little arrow, uh, two horizontal lines and an arrow. He's trying to get word wrap going. So it's the third button over. Got it. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So that gets us. A reference to the link that we want to test, which is a good starting point. Okay. But obviously, we want to count the images inside the list item. So how do we get from the link to the list item? Well, the relationship is that the list item is the parent of the link. So var $li equals $a dot parent. So we're, yeah. walking, we're walking the HTML structure. We're walking the DOM. So then we're ready to do our, 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 our QUnit testy bit. So we want to do a dot an a dot equal, but what do we? What's our expected value? Uh, well, sorry, our actual value and our expected value. So our expected value is one, right? We want there to be a, an image. So then we've got to figure out what the actual value is, and then we've got a bit more jQuerying to do to actually count the images. So I decided to be very pernickety, um, and I decided to say that I wanted to count images that directly follow links. So yeah, I use okay. the CSS selector for follows or after, which is the plus symbol. 
So A plus IMG means an image directly after a link. Huh. All inside the same little quotes. Yes. It's a string with yes. A plus IMG. Yes. So that selector says I want images, but only images that directly follow A tags. Wow. Huh. Okay. And then I say as a second argument where to search and the where to search is only the the one list item that we are currently examining, which we got from a dot parent. So okay. those, and then dot length at the end tells me how many were found. Right. So the comment says the number of images after links in the list item. And we want that right. to be one. So the second argument to equal is one. And then we have our little string. An image was added after the link, blah, blah, blah. So that's our test for everything that should have an image. And then the, the test for everything that shouldn't is awfully similar. But, uh, <laughs> it's just zero, right? Right, for exactly. The, other... the expected is zero, not one. And against the second array, the ID is no target. Yes. Okay. Now, my documentation also says that certain image, certain things should be ignored because they have a specific CSS class. So I actually tested for those separately. So I did a little test to say that to make sure that uh, there was no image for the uh, one with the ID APTB, whatever, because it has the class ignore Bartificer. And right. then there's another ignore Bartificer mark external, same test. And those were, those were those optional variables that you had in the uh, documentation, right? Precisely. Okay. Uh, well, no, no. It said in the documentation that if you give something a class Bartificer ignore, the function should ignore it. So that ignore it means it shouldn't have had anything added to it. So that's why I'm checking that one to make sure it has zero. Oh, I thought I thought adding the class of Bartificer ignore was something that an option you could put in. No, there's when you an option the link for you toolkit. to specify classes of your choice that you would like to have added. This is the opposite way around. So if you have a link that has the class Bartificer ignore, then it will be ignored. Hmm. Okay, I believe you. I just so thought it's the other way around. Other way around it's, it's, but I understand. Okay. So when you're writing right. HTML, you can specify that it should be skipped. Um, and then I have some tests in there to make sure that, uh, so the documentation says that it should get the class Bartificer external link, and I'm just making sure that it does indeed get those classes added. So the next thing I want to draw your attention to, so once I have tested for the basics, I then have a separate test for each of the different possible options. And for the different possible options, I don't spend my time testing every single one again. I just pick one at random as my guinea pig. And the way I do that is by using jQueries.first function. Hmm. So the way we build it up is, so we, so we say we want, um, so it, let me just, I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how far to skip ahead here. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So we'll use as our example the test for alt text. So the alt text option, so it's qunit.test option alt text. So in theory, you can call the Bartificer mark external function and pass it an option alt text, and then you specify some custom alternative text, which could be, so the default I think is opens in new window or something like that, but you might say ouvert dans fenêtre nouveau, which is terrible <laughs> French I'm just making up here, because I don't know if windows on computers are also fenêtres. Uh, like a window <laughs> in a house. But anyway, you get the idea. So 
what we want to make sure is that the image that was created, or the images that were created, do indeed have the alt text ouvert en fenêtre nouveau. <laughs> and I could test every single one, but I just felt that was a complete waste of time. So I just want to pick one and test it. So you see the 16 line snippet here? That's what we're going to work through. What uh, what line are we on? Uh, or is it after? Well, I was going to say, I have it pasted in the show notes separately as just 16 lines starting with qunit.test option alt text. Is it above? Oh, there we go. Okay, we've jumped out of the big one. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, because the big one is oh, so much scrolling. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we start, as you might expect. I just declare a variable that says var custom alt text equals dummy alt text. I probably should have put boogers in there, but what the heck? You really should, but it's a convention. You know, it's a, it's not. A, it does. You don't have to do it that way. No, it's only we who do it that way. It's a convention. <laughs> So we, we, we just save that in a variable so that we can test it later in our expected value. Um, then we call the okay. function toolkit mark external. The first argument is the fixture, and the second argument is saying alt text colon custom alt text. So set the alt text to custom alt text. And okay. then I say make sure the icons have the custom alt text. So I say an a.equal. The second argument is the easy one, which is the expected value, which is custom alt text. But the first argument takes some pulling apart. And this time I have intentionally not dumbed it down. I have intentionally not broken it into pieces so that we can talk through it because this is more realistic. This is how you would expect to find jQuery code in the wild. <laughs> okay, this is what we'll have to learn to read. This is what you have to learn to read. So the first thing is always remember that the 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 full stop, as we would call it in English, the period, as you guys would call it, the dot operator is the big picture splitter of things. So, and it's going to work from left to right. So the first thing is we have a whole bunch of stuff, dot first, dot atter. So the whole bunch of stuff actually happens first. And then the result of that gets dot firsted. And then the result of that gets dot attered. Okay. So that's how it ripples through. So we need to start with the first call to dollar, which is okay. calls dollar with two arguments. The first argument is a string we'll look at in a moment. And the second argument is another call to the dollar function, which just gets us a reference to the fixture. So the way I've read the documentation is is the, the thing on the left is what you're looking for, and after the comma is where you're looking. Precisely. So in okay. other words, we're looking so for we're whatever's here. So we're looking in the QNIP fixture. Yes, yeah. we're looking for whatever this is, which we'll talk about now, and we're looking inside the fixture, which is what yeah. we want to do. Okay. So... The A plus IMG, I'm hoping you remember from about three minutes ago. <laughs> it's still in there, Bert. It hasn't okay. gone into buffer overflow yet. So it's an image that follows an A tag. So do you remember what the space operator does? So just one tag, space, another tag. Do you remember what that meant? It means contained nope. within. I... Okay. So, a, so LI space A means an A tag that is inside an LI tag. So this is okay. an image straight after a link that's inside a list item. So an image that's inside an LA, LI no. tag. No. no, an image that's after a link that's inside a list item. So, oh, because the A tag is the, is the link. Yes. The problem is I'm seeing LI and my brain is saying link when you say <laughs> link. It's yes. reading that. So it's an image in a link. No, an image right after an after. LI no, no. tag. No, no, other way around. So plus means after. So the image is directly after the A tag and the whole lot is inside That's... the LI. Okay. So plus means after and say nothing means inside. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
making myself a separate note that I'll lose later. <laughs> and this okay. is the same syntax as CSS, right? So this is a CSS selector. So in CSS, it, you, you would be writing exactly the same if you wanted to style all images that followed links that were inside list items. You'd, you'd use exactly the same syntax. Okay. So that gets us all of the images that directly follow an A tag inside a list item inside the fixture. And then okay. I call the dot first function on, on the result of that. So in other words, throw all of them away except for whatever one happens to be top of the list. And top of the list is just, it, there could be 12 icons immediately after that A tag in that list, in that, a, in that link in that list. Uh, well, no. That so what you're the, okay, with? so the fixture contains many, many list items. So there's lots of images that are oh, okay. that are directly after a link inside an okay, LI. Okay, sorry. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got you. Got you. And the all dot first does is say, yeah, throw everything away apart from the first one. And then I say dot at or alt. In other words, just and look into one of them and see if it got the alt tag I wanted. Okay, you're looking to see if there's an alt tag that's in the first list item that has an image immediately following the link and is inside the fixture. Oh, the, no, inside the image, right? The image is what you're actually capturing. So images, so what you're saying oh, is the, give the, image the images the that directly follow and are within. Okay. In other words, I we want to make sure that... Again, but okay. Yeah. I got so, you. Yeah, so we're testing basically is the alt text what we want it to be, which is okay. the whole point of this function. And you could argue that I should test every single link, but you know something? I No, that's, to me, that's overkill. I'm just going to pick one and test it. So the hence, I'm just okay. saying, give me the first one. If it's okay, I'm going to assume the rest are fine because the same function made them all. If the same function can make it correctly, it can make it correctly. And I use the same design for all of my other tests, like does it get the CSS classes and so forth. Huh. Okay. Uh, the, this concept, this distinction between something space something. So tag one space tag two means that tag two must be inside tag one versus tag two plus tag one that distinction is really important for the option icon external because the icon the hmm. icon external defaults to true which means stick the image after the link if you said icon external to false it means stick the image inside the link okay which means that if the image is inside the link, it should not be a plus image. It should be a space image. Or sorry, yeah, a space IMG. And so that Quite. text basically makes sure that there was an image added inside and there was not an image added outside. Hmm. Okay. And as I say, there's lots more there. So I actually, so I said to you, to you that you could write as many or as few tests as you wanted. <laughs> And you chose. I did them all because I took this as an opportunity to improve the open source code. So now the open source code has a complete test suite. And while writing that test suite, not in this particular function, but while writing the tests for the function auto externalize, the act of writing the test showed up two bugs, one of which actually was fairly substantial. Um, the bugs affected what happened in the case of non-default options. So most okay. of the time I use my own library with the defaults because, well, I wrote it. So the defaults are exactly what I want. Um, <laughs> and so I never noticed that if you if you pass in certain options, they were completely ignored. The, the, the function just didn't do what the option said to do. It just did the default anyway. And that was shown <laughs> up by the testing because the testing said that this should happen and it didn't. 
And then I found the bug and they were all dumb bugs. Like little one-liners, very easy to fix. But that's how most bugs are. They're human-made. They're usually dumb little things. And so the act of writing the test suite, found the bugs, fixed the bugs. So I added the test suite, fixed the bugs, and then released the whole lot as version 1.0 and re- on GitHub. So you can download the whole release on GitHub. Or I've also added a link in the show notes that takes you straight to the test suite. So if you just want to look at my test code, if you click on the second of the two links there, it'll jump you to the file on GitHub that's just my test suite. And you can see that the total test suite is unfortunately 840 lines long. Jeez. So I, there's a uh, week. It would have been really fun if anyone had gotten super double secret extra credit by having found that bug themselves. Because if you downloaded the code right away, as I did, and did a good job of doing the test, you would have found this bug. That's true, actually. Yeah, because the bug was there for everyone to find. You're right. So if you did go yeah. on as far as auto externalized, then you hopefully would have found the bug, too. You should have pretended that you that that's what you did on purpose, right? Yes. I, <laughs> six months ago, or however long ago we, we wrote this, I definitely did this on purpose. Totally. Look how me. clever I am. But I loved your response to this because your your view of it was, this is awesome, because yeah. it showed that there was this is why you do uh, test driven development, right? Is uh, you would have known the bug a lot sooner had you done your development using TDD, right? Absolutely. It would have been found before the before the code went up on GitHub in the first place. Yeah, pretty probably as soon as you started looking at, okay, what options might somebody else want? Let yeah. me make this feature optional. Because yeah. I would have written the test and the feature. The test and the feature. So the feature would simply never gotten... I would have run the test. Go, oh, I'm not finished yet. Ah, there we go. Now I'm finished. Yeah, because it, it was actually a pretty quick fix for you, right? Oh, very quick. It was just a little... I just forgot. Like a variable ended up yeah, getting lost. Second, yeah, the second, uh, the, the second, uh, second argument wasn't passed. Yeah. So basically argument, the variable yeah. got passed into one function that should have been passed through to a, a function called from within the first function, and it wasn't. It was just ignored. So it just basically went poof. Oh, you've <laughs> made this preference. No, you haven't. Poof. Put the variable, <laughs> you know, literally add the second argument to the function call and everything just burst into life. It, it was that simple a fix. But yeah, I didn't notice, and I would have noticed if I was testing. So I, I said I wanted to teach you one more small little thing in QUnit, and it's a feature called to-do. So <laughs> if you're writing one test and then writing some code and then writing one test and then writing some code, that works fine. But what if you write 20 tests and then some code? Do you really want to waste QUnit's time running tests that you absolutely know are guaranteed to fail because you haven't even started on that aspect of the code? Or do you want to say to someone who's really good at writing tests, maybe you're working on a team and someone's way ahead of you and they've written all the tests, do you really want to say, no, no, stop, don't do your work? Well, no. <laughs> what you'd like to do is have the test writing and the code writing be a little bit easier to decouple from each other. And jQuery's thought of that. So if you replace the word test, so instead of saying qunit.test, say qunit.todo, the test still exists but it's not run. It's assumed that it failed. It doesn't even try execute it. It just assumes failure. And then it marks it in the output as having... So it says to do, and then it says the name of the test, and it just says, yeah, and by the way, I have assumed failure for everything. And at the top, in your summary, it says, so many tests completed in so many milliseconds, one failed, none skipped, and 14 to do. So to do are just... They're there, so you know they're there. You're not going to forget them. They're, they haven't vanished off the face of the earth. But you're not wasting CPU time. You're not wasting effort. Screen space. and 
and screen space exactly it's not full of ugly reds because they're marked as to do and all you have to do so is i'm, I'm a little them. confused i'm just a little confused because i'm looking at the screenshot you provided and mm -hmm. i do see where it says 15 tests completed blah blah zero skipped then it says 14 to do but we do indeed have a giant red thing right because i left one test as a real test because that's what i'm going to so work that... on first Okay, so where are the, oh, there's the to-dos all below that. Okay, my brain just went right to the red and was looking for to-do and going, what? but yeah, there's a 14 to-dos down there. Yeah, so we have Gee, one failure. 11 to-dos. Yeah, so basically this is actually a sneak peek at the start state of your homework. This is how I hand you the start of your assignment. There is one Ooh. test marked as not to be, not to do, so one active test, and it fails because the grand total lines of code in this project is zero, and you're going to build it up from zero. Okay. And basically, you go, what you're going to do is you're going to make this test pass, and then you're going to take, depending on how energetic you feel, maybe take two or three to-dos and turn them into tests, and then make those pass, and then take another few to-dos and turn them into tests and make those pass, and keep oh, working neat. your way down until you get to the bottom. And so the fact that I've marked them all as to-do means that you can re-enable them at your pace, maybe one at a time, maybe three at a time, whatever. It's your choice. So you just Can you skip the, around? Yes, absolutely. Anyone you Okay, you don't have to go in order. You don't have to go in order. So basically, you go into the code and you replace qunit.todo with qunit.test and all of a sudden it springs into life. Oh, nice. Oh, I see the one I'll get. Function exists. Yes. I think that one should be straightforward <laughs> enough. That's sort of like you're giving me credit. You'll give me credit for putting my name on my paper. <laughs> it kind of is actually. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> which is an urban legend the by the way I've, I've marked exams you do not get credit for putting your name on the paper <laughs> I'll have to ask uh, Marianne and Terry whether they do that uh, that'd be funny to know Manus All University right. certainly does not credit you for knowing who you are <laughs> that is assumed knowledge okay Okay. so let's switch track to some HTML inputs and so, then at the end you're going to tell us what the assignment is yes yeah, so then I'm going to then yeah so the challenge comes at the end okay okay so just a very quick reminder so that we get back onto this track, because we've been off this track for a month and a bit now. So the very first thing I told you about was that an HTML form is contained inside the form tag. Open angle bracket form, all of your stuff goes in, close angle bracket form. So your form tag wraps your form. If you want to group different related form entries, you can use the field set tag. And then always use a legend with your field set because the legend gives a title to the field set. And that way screen readers know what this related group of things are. Right, right. We also said that the whole point of a form. So a form's history is that it's designed to send data to a server. Although we're going to use it to JavaScript. Originally, it was all about sending stuff to servers. So a form, every input on a form evaluates to a name value pair. And up until now, that's actually been a bit arbitrary. But with text input, it's really quite straightforward. You give the text box a name, and then the value is what the person types in it. So actually, that gets easier as we go on. But it's all about making these name-value pairs. And then the other thing that you should always, 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 always do is you should label your inputs. So we learned about the label tag, and we learned that you can use the label tag in two ways. You can either have a label tag, you open the label tag, you type in the label text, and then you type in your input, and then you close the label tag. So the label wraps the description and the thing it's describing, and that will that's enough for screen readers to understand that this text goes with this thing. And it's also enough that if you click on the text, the browser knows that it should activate the thing. 
So okay. if you have a checkbox and you label it in this way, clicking on the text will check the checkbox, which is what you want as a user because it's much easier than aiming at that small little square. And a lot of web designers don't do that, and that makes me very cranky because I click on the label I want and nothing happens. Anyway, you can't always do that. Sometimes you may want the label to be not directly next to the thing or whatever. So your second choice is that you give the thing being labeled, so the checkbox or the radio button or whatever, you give it an ID, and then somewhere else in your document you have a completely separate label tag, which contains your text, and it has four equals and then whatever the ID is of the thing you're labeling. And that connects the two together. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that, but good. So there are your two ways, and it doesn't matter which you use, right? For screen readers and for browsers, they'll work the same, but you as a programmer get to choose which is easier for you in this particular situation. So all of that still holds, right? As we're moving from checkboxes and radio buttons into text input, all of those rules still hold. You label everything, and it's all about these name value pairs. Okay, so there we're caught up now. Yeah. So yeah. In, in HTML land... There is actually a lot of different ways of entering text. And in HTML5 land, which is the land we live in, because we're ignoring history and just learning about what exists today, in HTML5 land, there are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of ways of entering text. Because HTML5 (laughs) was really focused on making form input better. Oh, okay. But regardless of how many of them there are, they fall into two very, very distinct categories. Single-line text input and multi-line text input. They are completely separate context concepts in HTML. Single-line is the vast majority of stuff, and then there's also this special case for multi-line. So we are going to refer to single-line as text boxes. Some people call them text fields. And then we're going to learn refer to multi-line as text areas. So if okay. I say text, text area, boxes, text area. I mean a multi-line. If I say text box, you mean, mean two-dimensional. Area has two dimensions. Bingo. That's a perfect mnemonic. Okay. Yes. So today we're only going to look at basic text. In other words, freeform text. And all of the other many, many choices with text revolve around it not being freeform. And so that's what we're going to do in the next installment. So what do I mean by not freeform? Well, a telephone number is not freeform. You cannot have the telephone number boogers. An email address is not freeform. A URL is not freeform. So HTML5 has this concept that you can say that this text box is for a given thing. And so that's what we're going to focus on next time. But for today, we're going to keep it simple. We're just looking at a freeform text box and a freeform text area. Okay. Gotcha. Now, most annoyingly, and purely due to historic baggage, it's different tags for a text box versus a text area. <laughs> okay. So we'll start with text boxes. Uh, I should also say that both, regardless of which type of text thing you're making, the name attribute is how you give the name for the name value pair. So name equals blah, which is exactly how it was with checkboxes and exactly how it was with radio buttons. So that, that continues to hold true. So text boxes are done with the input tag, which we've already met twice. So we know that input with a type attribute of radio gives us a radio button. We know that input with a type attribute of checkbox gives us a checkbox. Well, input with a type attribute of text gives us a text box. 
Well, that actually makes sense. It actually does make sense. And again, label them. So below we have our first code snippet. It's an extremely simple HTML form. Form action equals JavaScript colon void zero, which basically I said make a text expander snippet for that. Because we're just going <laughs> to always do that until we learn about server-side processing like ages and ages and ages and ages from now. Okay. Then we say label your name. And then we have input type equals text, name equals user underscore name. And then we close the label. So we have one label containing the text and the input. And the result is a form that says your name, and then there's a box for you to type in. Okay. So the the name equals quote user underscore name. That is the what the screen. No, I I still I don't follow okay, what so that, that's remember, the ID. No. No. The whole point of a form is that it submits as a na- as a collection of name value pairs. The value will be what the user oh, types okay, into gotcha. the text box. The name is the name. Okay. 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 Uh, you can use the value attribute to specify initial text. So every time the page loads, some text will be pre-entered into the form, or every time the form is reset, that text will come back. And so you do that by saying name equals whatever, value equals whatever. So in this case, I put value equals John Doe. And now you can see that the form looks exactly like it did before, but it says John Doe pre-populated for you. Is that how they make the uh, the pull-down list that always start with the United States as the default country? Because that's what everybody should pick? Uh, well, if, if it's a pull-down list, if it's a pull-down list, it's a select, which we learned about many moons ago, not a text input. Right, but it, but you're giving it a value ahead of time, right? Well, in that case, you're saying a select consists of options, and then we learned that it was oh, selected that's equal right. selected. That's right, that's right. If okay. you did your country as a free-form text box, which would be highly dangerous because people will type very <laughs> dumb things, but if you uh-huh. did it as a free-form text box, then the way you would make it default to the United States of America would be to say value equals USA. Okay. All right. <laughs> now, uh, to be honest, a pre-populated value isn't actually that useful. What's a lot more useful is example information, but example information that the user doesn't have to select and delete. And HTML5 dealt with this. Before HTML5, you had to use JavaScript hacks to say on focus, delete content and stuff, and it it was messy. HTML5 fixed this problem by creating a new attribute with the name placeholder, all one word. So you can now say placeholder and then put in some text. And that text will be shown only when these two things are true. The text box is empty and you're not currently in it with your cursor. Hmm. And it will also be shown in a grayed out way. So so, cursor being not even hovering over it? No, no, you can hover over it, but it's not the one where you're typing now. Okay. Okay. Just imagine if it stayed there while you're trying to type. Just imagine how confusing that would be. I have actually seen that. Recently, that's, that's when like, uh, don't use the placeholder. They're doing some sort of old JavaScript hack. Ah, okay. And not doing it very well. Because yeah. before the placeholder attribute was added in HTML5, people wanted this functionality, but it wasn't a feature. So they wrote JavaScript to try hack it, and a lot of that JavaScript was very icky. Yeah. So you can see there, we just say placeholder e.g. John Doe. And now we have a much better form. It says your name e.g. John Doe. Now, obviously, that's not the world's best real-world example, but you get the idea. Sure. So the visual size of a text box 
is determined by the font size. So if you have a text box in a part of your page where the CSS says the font size should be a thousand pixels, you will have a thousand. You will have a massive text box. If you have a text box in a piece of of your page where the CSS says it should be a four point font, you will have the world's teeny tiniest text box. The text box is entirely determined by the font size. You can determine the length of the text box using an attribute called size, but you're not telling it the length in pixels or the length in percentages. You're telling it the length in characters. So it's the number of characters it should be across. So that's going to be sized for whatever the default is then, or for whatever the placeholder text is, right? No, no. So by default, I think it's 30 characters across. And if you say size equals 40, then it'll be 40. If you say size equals 10, it'll be 10. I'm sorry. Right, right, right. But the unit, the unit is characters. The unit is not pixels. The unit is not percentages. The unit is characters. So size equals some number. The some number is characters. That's the unit of length. Okay. There is also an attribute called max length, which determines how many characters you can physically type in before the browser says no. And so you'll often see this on credit card fields where it's 444. And if you try to type five, it just won't happen. The browser just says no. Yeah. And that's done with max length. I actually hate that because it never seems to be in a field where that made sense. Like like it'll be a a phone number where it's got an area code and then the prefix and then the four digits, which is the way ours is formatted anyway. And so you try to just keep typing because you expect it to just hop to the next field for you, but it doesn't. Yes, that is most annoying. (laughs) Um, Now, the max length... And the visual size are unrelated. So you can ha- you can say size equals 1,000, max length 1. You will get a massive text box into which you can type one character. <laughs> I'm totally doing that. And you can also do the opposite. You can say size 1, max length 1,000. It will be a tiny text box that scrolls like bejesus. <laughs> But did, again, oh, it will scroll. It That's will scroll, and you've seen okay. that, right? If you put a really, really long subject in on Gmail or whatever, you can keep entering it, but it will start to scroll. Okay. I find generally I like to have my size a little bit bigger than my max length. So the example we have here is enter your two-letter country code, type equals text, name equals user underscore country, placeholder equals US, max length equals two, size equals three. And that just makes okay. it not quite as cramped. But you I'm glad you used the right you. placeholder too. And I used, I, yes, I figured you'd appreciate that. <laughs> now, HTML5 has also added two very important extra attributes that, if you don't use them right, will make iOS and Android users hate you. Oh. So if you need to enter something which isn't normal text, you actually really don't want autocorrect deciding that actually, no, you meant something else. Right. You can specify that fact. There are, in oh. fact, there are two. Um, there are two attributes. You can control spell checking, and you can control autocomplete. So, the first attribute is simply a, a true/false one. So you can say spell check equals true, or spell check equals false. And so, if you don't want those silly red underlines, then that's a good way to go. And I'm pretty sure that on iOS, if you say spell check equals false, it won't assume that you should autocorrect. Because autocorrect and autocomplete, I'm not always sure how iOS interprets those. 
But okay. the other one you have autocorrect is, and autocomplete the same thing? No. No, autocorrect is spell check. Autocomplete is finish typing the word. Got yeah. You. Okay. So the other one then is autocomplete, which has two obvious values, off and on. But the specification actually allows you to give the browser more of a hint. There is hmm. a standard, which is linked in the show notes, which lists all of them. But you can say things like autocomplete equals T-E-L, which is short for telephone. And that will tell, in theory, the browser that what's expected here is a telephone number. And so if you're going to offer an autocompletion, maybe offer it from their contacts instead of offering them something silly. Oh, is that so is that that's how Apple does that a lot? I presume Apple obey this. Um, But yes, basically, it allows you as the web developer to tell the browser I want a blah, blah, blah. And there's a whole list of possible things you could want, including URL, tell, email, all sorts. And that Ooh. will help the autocomplete if it's smart enough. It won't guarantee it, but it's just a hint to the OS and the browser that if it's going to offer help, you could be that little bit more helpful. It doesn't guarantee it will be done in the same way. It's just you as the developer giving the OS the chance to be helpful. How it actually behaves is entirely OS dependent, entirely browser dependent. And, you know, in today's international world, I bet this is just annoying. Like I'm looking at the at the tell one and it would be perfect for me. Right? It's, it's going to be 10 digits plus the with the plus one at the front. Right. But, I but have that's a feeling... not going to work for people in a lot of countries. It's not going to work in Peru. They got a totally different set of characters. But the thing is, on my Irish iPhone, when I type in telephone numbers, it autocorrects the Irish way. It knows huh. our area codes. Oh, so maybe they show, maybe this is just an example, I not the absolute truth. Well, ultimately, right. No, it says canonical format example. And it shows my format. But it's an example. It didn't say that. It says canonical. Oh, okay, it does but say it starts example. with a plus. Yeah, canonical format example. Okay, all right. All right, the plus is canonical because... Well, I bet by the time you're done teaching us, we could find out. We could do it ourselves. Possibly. But, but as I say, what you're doing here is you're giving a hint to the browser and the OS. It, this is not guaranteeing anything. So the spec okay. doesn't say this will work in a certain way. It just basically says you can tell the browser that you want these things and the browser can then decide how it should interpret that. So Apple may decide to be helpful in a different way to Google, in a different way to Microsoft. What you're doing here is you're just offering assistance to the autocomplete, which is entirely up to the browser and OS to decide how to interpret so text areas then are the next thing we want to look at. And they're they're not a million miles different, thankfully, but they are a little bit different. So the first thing is the tag is not the input tag. The tag is the text area tag. And unlike the input tag, the text area tag must be closed. So it's text area slash text area. The text area does not have a value attribute. Instead, you should type the text between the opening and closing tags if you want there to be initial text. Uh, It does have a name attribute, and you should label it just like you label anything else. It also supports the placeholder. Uh, Hold on, back up. So, So let me, I'm trying to look back at what we just finished name. So name user country. Okay, so when you're saying like name equals body, you can name you can name it anything you want. Yes, you can. Okay, that's just how it's going to get spit into uh, the database or whatever you're creating with this data when you get it. Precisely. Uh, and you said text area ID equals mission uh, message body, whereas before we said 
Right, because I've decided just... to label it separately. So I said label four equals message body, close label, text okay. area, ID equals message body. So remember I told you there were two ways to label? This is me showing yeah, you Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to... Okay, but I'm trying to compare the two and scrolling up and down to see what the difference is between them. But, uh, so the the word text area is what's saying it's going to make this a text area, not a text box. Correct. And what we said before was input type equals text is what made it a text box, not a text area. Yes. Yeah, so the input tag does many, many things. So input type equals checkbox gives you a checkbox. Input type equals radio gives you a radio button. Input type equals text gives you a text box. The input tag is massively But we don't do text area. Yeah, but text do... area is not done with an input. Precisely. Text area has a whole tag all to itself called text okay, area. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And you will see the text area, like input doesn't have, there's no input slash input. Input is just one of those little standalone tags like BR. It doesn't have a closing tag. Text area okay. does have a closing tag. So it's text area, blah, 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 blah. Then if you want, you can stick some text inside the text area tag, which will be your initial content, and then you close the text area tag. Huh. Okay. There is also no uh, value they do it attribute. the same way, but okay. Yeah. yeah, look, they're different, and it's entirely for legacy reasons, right? We okay. are on HTML5, and they made some mistakes on 1, 2, 3, and 4. And sometimes those mistakes spill over into inconsistencies and huh moments, and this is kind of one of them. Okay. So you don't say value equals John Doe. If you wanted to put some sample text in, you'd put it between the opening text area tag and the closing text area tag. Now, you can also specify a size, and again, the size is calculated in um, characters, not in pixels or percentages, but it's two-dimensional. So it's two attributes, rows and calls. So rows equals 10 means 10 characters up and down. Calls equals 50 means 50 characters across. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yeah. Okay. That's consistent, right? It is consistent. It is sane. Um, and then the only other attribute I think we absolutely have to mention. So it also supports the it supports the uh, spell check equals true, spell check equals false, and it supports autocomplete equals on and autocomplete equals off. It does not support any of the other autocomplete options. So you can't say autocomplete equals tell because well that is, makes sense exactly. It's designed for multi-line input. Not for a telephone yeah, number. Yeah, and free form. Quit, quit cramping my style. I'm in a, I'm in a text area. If you're not looking okay. for free form text, it's probably not the right tag for you. Like that is what yeah. the text area is all about. And so it does make yeah. sense, but I just thought we'd mention it. So the attribute I'd want to draw your attention to is the wrap attribute, which determines how text wraps inside the text box. So the default value is wrap equals soft. And what soft wrapping means is that if you reach the edge of the text box, it will appear to move on to a new line, but that new line character is virtual. It's not actually in the value represented by that text box. If you send that to a server, the new line character isn't really there. It's only pretend there. Does that make hmm. sense? Okay. Yeah. If you say wrap equals hard, when you bounce off that edge, the browser will actually put an actual like return key in there. And the value sent to the server or to JavaScript will actually have that return key in there. 
I wonder how many people do that to themselves when they create a, a, a text box like, or I'm sorry, a text area like this, because that's only annoying to me if I create that text area and I put it in hard. That means when I try to like copy or, you know, put yeah. that text somewhere else, it's going to be this little tiny narrow field when I've got a bunch of space and it's going to look stupid. I have never in my life actually used wrap equals hard. <laughs> I've used wrap equals yeah. soft and I've used the other option, which is the final option, which is do not do any wrapping. So wrap equals off. And with wrap oh. equals off, what happens is that when you reach the edge, scroll bars develop, hmm. which can be useful for text that you that it does not make sense to mush onto new lines. So there must also be another value you haven't told us about that, and that is the most annoying. I'm sorry, I've only given you 126 characters to tell me everything that was wrong with my service to you. Um, actually, that's a good question. That may be implemented in JavaScript, or else there is a max length attribute that I haven't bothered ever to yeah, use. Yeah, there's, there's got to be because I mean, okay, hate well, that field. Okay, well let me look that up now. <laughs> uh, text. So the way I would do this, which is literally what I'm doing, I'm going to Google. I'm typing in the search text area space MDN, which is the Mozilla Developer Network, because they have the best docs. So text area MDN. I hit search. The very first result I get is on developer.mozilla.org. Which takes me straight to the documentation for the text area tag. I scroll down, autocomplete, autofocus calls, disabled form, max length. Yes, be... there is. Called max length, introduced in HTML5. There we go. There we go. So Maximum so make, make it feel characters. says, what do you like about my site? And give them like 2,000 characters and a max length of five. <laughs> yep. By the way, I'm really glad you just told me what MDN was. For some reason, I, I, I didn't read that it said Mozilla Developer Network, but I've always skipped over MDN because I thought it was Microsoft. Ah. I mean, it says I, no, Mozilla there's a reason for that. Right. There's something called the MSDN, which is the Microsoft Developer Network. Oh, maybe that's the one I was running into. Okay. I mean, not that I hate Microsoft or anything. I just, I'm, I'm always worried that that won't be the open way of doing something. So I don't want to take the rules. Yeah, the Mozilla, actually, the reason I love the M, the MDN, so the Mozilla Developer Network, is that they will actually mark the stuff that's not standard across browsers with a little yellow exclamation point. Mm. And they will make special notes. Like, there's also a browser compatibility section on every page. If you scroll down on the page on the text area, it scrolls down and it tells you all the different browsers. So which attributes are supported where and so on and so forth. It's pretty darn good. That's cool. And they do that for every single HTML tag quite like it so they're, they're my go-to people for documentation when i'm doing these show notes so when, when it's html when it's html yes yes so yeah. my html yeah my bffs for uh, some stuff w3c is my bff for just what is the name of that css attribute that does italics again because it's not called italics it's called text dash style i think if memory serves i always forget mm -hmm. and is it font dash weight or text dash weight i know yeah Oh, good. That makes me feel better that you can't remember either. Oh, no. I just know where to Google. That That is the most important <laughs> skill of any programmer is Googling it's, or binging, which I still like used to say as a verb. Um, okay. So you can see there we have a simple text area tag and it makes what we all recognize as a simple text area. They, they sort of do exactly what they say on the tin. The good news is when it comes to interacting with these things through jQuery, it's extremely straightforward because really... They, all you need to remember is if you would like to access the content that is currently typed in, it's the dot .val function with no arguments. And if you would like to change what is typed into the text box or text area, it's the val function with one argument, which is the new text. And that's kind of the main thing. You can alter things like the placeholder using the atter function we already know about. 
And that's kind of all there is to it. So dot val and dot atter is kind of all you need to know. So give me the line number. So I see where you're doing the dot val on line 14. What is the, uh, where's, where are you showing I, us that you can alter I don't it? use dot atter. Oh, no, I do, do use dot atter. It's at the place, I use the placeholder later on in line 14. Line 14 is a perfect example. It does everything, actually. So var subject equals, we call the dollar function. We say, get, get me the thing with the ID msg underscore subject. Yes. Okay. And then we yes. call dot val on it. And so you if, say, give me the value that goes with that name. Now, if they haven't typed anything, what do we want instead? Well, actually, I'll take the placeholder instead. So I say, or get me the same thing, dot atter placeholder. Right. So in other words, if the value is empty, I'll take the placeholder. So there I am accessing both. Okay, I thought you said uh, one of these lines was going to remind us of how to set that value. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just saying that that's how the val function always works. I, yeah. I, I didn't, yeah. I, okay, I, so in this case, we're trying to pull data from it, not yeah. set it. If okay. we wanted to set data, we'd do exactly the same thing with an extra argument. So one argument to val or two arguments to atter. Okay. Which is the, yeah, which is standard, basically. Yeah, this is a very, right. So we have here pbs35.html, which is in the zip file for this installment. And it is a very simple form that has one text box and it has one text area. Uh, I've, I've made the text box not spell check and not autocomplete. I've made it 50 long and I've given it the placeholder no subject. I've made a very basic text area. It has 10 rows, 55 columns and nothing else specified. So it's all default. And then I've added a button, which we learned about ages and ages and ages ago. And then I've used my little bit of jQuery to attach an event handler to the button, which says when you click the button, give me a dumb window.alert pop-up message that contains the subject and the message. It just demonstrates that I'm reading them correctly. It's okay. It's the most exciting page. But again, what I, really, I'm just trying to draw your attention to the HTML more than anything else. Okay. So that's not... Uh, wait a minute. It does work, though. It does, it, does, it does do what it's supposed to do. Okay. Oh, okay. I was reading the, JScript, uh, the jQuery at the top, and I'm sure. looking for the HTML going, ah, where is it? Okay, found it. Okay. Yeah. I said I'd like to think it's a very straightforward example. Yes, it does appear to be. Okay. Could I create it on my own? No, but I do understand what it does and how you did it. Well, it might be time to start blowing off the dust, because while... This this week's assignment is pure JavaScript that will cease to be true shortly. I, so I've we very... never wrote any of this. We yeah, didn't write any text boxes. So it's not blowing the du it's blowing the dust off the notes. But I the reason I said I couldn't do it is because I've never done it. Well, no, it's blowing the dust off the HTML in general. We haven't written any HTML yes. together in quite some time because we've been so right. We've been revising JavaScript. But I JavaScript. want I want to write HTML. Well, okay, so now it's time to say we need a new project because we've we've really done our date and time prototypes to death. And those prototypes mm -hmm. were pure JavaScript. They didn't interact with the doc they didn't interact with HTML or CSS at all. They're a hundred percent pure vanilla JavaScript, which has the advantage that you're not multitasking mentally, you're focusing on one skill. And of course it means you can take the that same class and use it anywhere JavaScript works. But this next project, I want to pull the strings together. So we have a string of HTML knowledge, and we have a string of CSS knowledge, and we have a string of JavaScript knowledge. And I want to weave them all together into one unified thing that we're going to have as an output. 
So this project is going to pull those threads together. Your very first okay. assignment is still pure JavaScript, but that, like I say, that will cease to be true very shortly. So I was scratching my head for weeks going, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? What will be fun? And just as I was starting to despair that I had no inspiration, I was listening to Security Now. And Steve Gibson mentioned something I haven't played with in years. It's called Conway's Game of Life. It sounds like a game, but it's not really a game. It does fit the description of a zero-player game, though. But what <laughs> Life, as it's usually known... So Conway's Game of Life is the full name, but Life is what it's often abbreviated to, and Life is what I'm going to call it, because that's just easier to say. It's actually a seminal piece of computer science that has changed the world in terms of theoretical computer science. And it's fun, which is a very rare combination. Um, it's visual, it's interactive, and to me that means that like fractals make maths fun, life makes theoretical computer science fun. <laughs> okay. So life, we used to think, and it's not an unreasonable assumption, that if you have a system with simple rules, then it will behave simply. For millennia, mankind labored under the false assumption that simplicity equals simplicity. Simple rules gives you simple outputs. Conway, a British um, mathematician, um, John Horton Conway, he discovered that with a very simple set of rules, and I'll read the rules in a minute because they really are simple, you can get emergent behavior, massive complexity coming out of simple inputs. And that is at the root of an entire branch of mathematics and science called complexity theory. And it's just a completely... this visual game blew the lid off what seems like a pretty normal assumption well simple in equals simple out no simple in can equal complex out and that's like whoa hmm. huh and if you think about it a little bit more well the rules for how water behaves in the atmosphere are pretty simple weather not simple <laughs> the rules for the stock market are pretty simple buy sell the behavior of the stock market not simple so in hindsight we should never have assumed that simple rules mean simple behavior but we can play with this concept using Conway's Game of Life. And Conway's Game of Life, depending on how on how you set it up, will either behave simply or complexly. So it allows you to see both behaviors, which makes it all very interesting mathematically. So as well as inventing Conway's Game of Life, Conway invented a whole new mathematical thing, which is the cellular automaton. And that's what we're going to build, because we need one of those to have a Conway's Game of Life. <laughs> a cellular automaton is it sounds whoa but it's actually very simple it's a grid a grid of squares right so you can imagine that in your head by the way we're going to use a table for this you get to use a table tag and i'm saying it's okay <laughs> okay okay so imagine you have a grid every cell in this grid is going to be a td tag in our finished version every cell in this grid has in a cellular automaton a state there can be arbitrarily many states. It depends on, on what you're building. But the simplest cellular automata are binary. So they have... The, each cell can be on or off. Black or white. True or false. Alive or dead. Okay? You get the idea? Okay. And the entire cellular automaton obviously has a state at any moment in time. Because every cell has a state. So the whole automaton has a state. And the automaton moves in lockstep. So you have a current state. And then something goes clunk. And then all the cells change to their next state. And then something goes clunk. And then all the cells change to their next state. So like a CPU, 
right? It's clock. Tick, change. Tick, change. So how okay. does it change? The rules for change are simple. Every cell calculates its own next state. And the only things it's allowed to use in that calculation are what is my current state and what is the current state of the cells that touch me? Okay, so each cell in the middle of the grid would have four neighbors. Six. Three above. So they can be touching on the corners. Yes, corners count. Yes, so you have six Thank neighbors. Thank you. That's what I want. That's exactly what I was asking. Okay. Yes. So every cell, all, right. all a cell knows is what is my state and what is the state of my neighbors, which may be between, if you're on a corner, you will only have three down, three. one, four. Right. I think. Yeah, no, three. A, no, you're right, three. Yes, if you're on a corner, you'll have three. If you're on an edge, you'll have more four five five five. you're right five three two and if you're in the middle you'll have six but anyway you will have n number of neighbors okay i think six yeah it is three and two yeah it is no it's eight three plus no it's eight that's what's wrong yeah 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 Yeah, okay my brain wasn't working there yeah everyone is now finished screaming at their ipods we figured that out folks (laughs) um we're just glad we can't hear them screaming you know so every cellular automaton is like that so Every cell has one of an arbitrary number of states and the next state is determined by what is my state and what are my neighbor's state. And then the rules can be different for every cellular automaton. So the rules for the game of life are there are two states, alive and dead. Hence, it's called the game of life. So the rules for the next state are any cell that is now alive that has less than two touching cells that are also alive dies. Basically, it's lonely, so it sods off. Wait, how is this the second state? What's the first state? Okay, so you, there will always be an initial state. So you start the thing off with an initial state. It doesn't. If you start it with all zeros, the game of life will do nothing. So you start the game of life with a random population. You have to start population. them off with some... Yeah. Okay. okay. So every, yeah, every cellular okay. automaton has a, has a starting point, and you, you can play with the starting okay. point as one of the inputs. So at any point in time while the thing is running, there will be a current state, and then you're trying to calculate the next state. And so given the current state, the rules for the game of life are, one, a live cell with less than two live neighbors dies. And the analogy is it's like being in an underpopulated area. You can't reproduce or something. Okay. Any live cell with exactly two or three live neighbors lives on as normal. Any live... Oh, I've copied and pasted that twice. So there's only four rules. Uh, I hope. (laughs) Ooh. Let me go back to these come from Wikipedia. So let me just I'm going to read them off Wikipedia because I can't have it can't be wrong. Then I will fix this in the show notes if I'm wrong. Game of life. There we go. Scroll down rules. Come on, Wikipedia. You must. There we go. Life rules. Yeah, there are only four of them. So I've copied and pasted one twice. Okay. Okay. So any cell with two or three living neighbors lives. Any cell with more than three living neighbors dies because of overpopulation. Oh. Any dead cell with exactly three neighbors magics back into life. (laughs) Okay, that's the zombie cell. Well, it's basically as if by reproduction. So if you're sitting around lots of people, or if you're sitting around three people, they make a baby. I don't know how that works, (laughs) but that's how the game of life works, right? But exactly three, the three of them have a baby. So those are four very simple rules based on my state and the state of my neighbors. And with just those four rules, you can get spectacularly complex behavior from the game of life. Everyone expected it to be simple and the outcome is not simple. But of course, we're going to have to build it to watch it in action. So 
it's going to take us a while, but we are going to build a JavaScript prototype that can create any arbitrary cellular automaton. And then using the ability to make any cellular automaton, we're going to build a game of life. Hmm. And we are going to allow people to use HTML forms to control the size of our game of life. How big of a grid do you want? How many across? How many down? That's text inputs right there. We're probably going to, in fact, we are going to use a text area to allow people to write their own rules in JavaScript. And then we're going to execute those (laughs) rules. So you can use this cellular automaton to run anything you like, but we'll default it to Conway's game of life. And we'll probably have a massive big text area to allow you to set initial conditions as well. So we're going to have a table containing cells, and they're going to be changing in line with this rules we're writing. So... It's going to be HTML on the page, obviously. It's going to be forms on the page, and we're going to use some CSS to make it all look right. So we're tying it all together, and we're going to have a working zero-player game when we're finished that we can set off and <laughs> okay. watch it develop and play. And so that is where we're going. But it's going to take us a while, so don't expect that next week I'm going to go, ta-da, here it is, <laughs> right? I, okay. There's many moving parts I do, I do parts have here. to say I'm sad that the first step isn't to write some HTML because I, I, I still feel like I'm sitting on that pony in the barn posting not getting to run in HTML. Well, the thing is you're, you're going to write the JavaScript to write the HTML. Oh, I don't even ever get to write the HTML? No, you okay, that's not true. You're going to get to write the HTML form, but the actual table, you're not going to write that by hand. Cause right, you, right. No, no, no. I don't want to ever write a table by hand. I good. hate writing tables. Yes, so it's going to be a mix of both. So the table is going to be created by the JavaScript, but all the other HTML for the text inputs and stuff, you're going to write that. Okay, but not for a couple of weeks? Well, yeah, well, right now there's nothing for you to... There's no input to put that data into. So collecting data as inputs, that comes when you have somewhere to shove it. Okay, I'll keep sitting in the barn. Well, look, we're, we're, you're on, you're, I've, I'm handing you the key to the padlock to the barn. You're going to unlock the barn, you're going to take the padlock off the door, you're going to slide the latch, you're going to open the door... You're going to find the bridle, put the bridle on the horse. (laughs) Still not going to get to get on it. Unlatch. Okay. Whatever you call the little thing the horse goes in that's inside this table. What do you call that? Stall. Stall, thank you. Stall. That's also what you call where men pee. Anyway. (laughs) Actually, women pee in stalls too, Bart. (laughs) Oh. Okay, I think think we call them cubicles here for women, but there you go. (laughs) Okay. That's not a here. All right, that analogy ran into the ground. Yes. So that's where we're heading. So your challenge for this week is a bite-sized piece of that. Now, I'll be honest, it's not the world's smallest bite, but it is a bite. But we only have one week. Okay. Oh, shoot. Didn't think that through. Anyway, I'm going to have a full sample solution, so if you only get it half done, fair enough. Um, okay. I, I say going to. I already have a sample solution, because the way I did this is I had... Okay, so what I'm going to give you is the developer documentation for my implementation of a prototype to represent one cell, right? We're not even building an automaton. We're building a cell today, a cell, right? The prototype represent one single cell. I'm giving you the documentation that says what functions should exist and what they should do. And that's in English. And English is notoriously difficult to understand. What do I mean exactly? So I'm also giving you a full QUnit test suite. And you will know when you have interpreted my English correctly when your JavaScript passes the completely non-arbitrary tests. Because the tests are going to pass or fail. There's no ambiguity Hmm. there. They're either yes or no. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
So I am handing you in the zip file, a folder, which contains the structure for a full API. So it's all of the files we're going to need to launch it on GitHub because maybe you... It might be conceivably possible that you could cheat by going to GitHub and just getting the answer, maybe. <laughs> just saying. But So it contains a folder called PBS 35 Challenge Starting Point. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Mm-hmm. You can ignore all of the files at the root level of that folder for this week. But I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that that folder contains three folders. One called docs-dev, which contains the developer documentation. One called lib, which contains a file that looks like it'll contain lots of stuff called bartofficer.ca.js. That file is 100% empty. It is your job to fill it. <laughs> it says your code goes here. Have fun. <laughs> Okay. And then there's a folder named test, which contains two files, index.html, which is a full jQuery test runner, and a file called tests.js, which is a full jQuery test suite. And I have changed all of the tests from qunit.test to qunit.todo, except for one. And then it's up to you to decide at what rate to go from todo to test. I'll leave that entirely to you. And the file that is the most important in the docs folder is the file bartofficer.ca.cell.html. Right? That is the documentation file. So don't go nav- don't get lost inside the docs. The actual file is that one HTML file. That describes every function and every variable that needs to exist inside that prototype. If it isn't listed there, it's not needed. Bartofficer.ca.html.cell. HTML. Uh, okay. It says it in the show notes, specifically blah, which describes okay. the cell prototype. And you'll know your code is finished when QUnit tells you you're finished. Okay. And actually, I'm thinking about this. So this is more than one week's work. So I have been, I have been saving a program, a taming the terminal. So why don't we do that next week and give you three weeks? Oh, that would be swell. Because <laughs> uh, to be honest, I might get my my uh, name written on the paper if you okay. hadn't done that. Okay. Yeah, but that's good. So I would say the the last time we finished with prototypes, we gave you a nine-step list of how to write a prototype. I would start with that nine-step list. Okay. So I, I don't understand what we're... Okay, so we wrote pbs.time to represent a time. Yes? Yeah. That contained three data points, which were hours, minutes, and seconds. And it contained mm-hmm. a bunch of functions. Yes? Yeah. So that was modeling a time. Today, we want to model a cell. So there's actually only two data points, current state and next state. And there's a bunch of functions. Okay. <laughs> you'll be getting a call immediately That's, upon me starting because I have no fine. idea how I would start. I I don't. Okay, but the nine-step program is the first step. It. Okay, but the okay, the, but the our our final when we finished up with prototypes, I gave you a final nine-step program, and the first step is to declare the namespace. I'm hoping you can get that bit done, and the second step is write a function with the same name as the prototype. And in there, create variables for each of your data points. So in this case, that's two data points. What are the, the data points are current on and state off? and next state? Oh, okay. So a cell has a current state and a next state. 
a time has hours, minutes, and seconds. Can you see the okay. analogy? A date has days, months, and years. A cell has current state and next date. So you, okay. When I was writing this code, I made to keep the style consistent. I used pbs.time as a template. So I suggest yeah, okay. pbs.time as a starting point for writing this empty, making this empty page look a bit less scary. Okay. <laughs> yeah, your belief in me is just, I, I always find fascinating. Uh, which I have no lesson? doubt that we will, uh, I, I will look it up and I will alter the show notes to say, here, here is the list Start of nine steps. Start with these nine steps. Yes. Okay, good. That would be that would be swell. Start with pbs.time to look at how to start. Okay. Yeah. It's been a while since we started pbs.time, which is why this is again, you, you know, we're reinforcing the same knowledge. There's nothing new here. We're just reapplying the same knowledge that we have applied in the past and then we revised it with pbs.time and now we're going to apply it again. And every time it's going to be like, "Oh, but we're we're going back a month, two months." Ah. But every time we drag you back, it's a little bit easier. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I like that. Okay. So, uh, so as I say, first step, we're just modeling one cell. We're on our way to a cool cellular automaton game, but right now, one cell. Current state, next state, and some functions. Good. Don't focus on the forest. Little okay. bitty tree here. Yeah. You said build a prototype, and I went, ah! Yeah, okay. That's the first thing we need to, to, to. If you build enough of them, you'll stop having that reaction. Yes, yeah. So that's good. That's good. You're gonna make me start from scratch again. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I am doing what you asked me to do, even though it's it's a lot of work for you. Yeah, that's that's good, and I'm glad I'm glad it's not one week. Yes. No, no. Uh, basically, Mac Apple changed how SSH works in Sierra, and it's been bugging me that our show notes for our SSH episodes are now wrong. Oh. Oh. And they need fixing. So that's what we'll do next time. Okay, that's uh, that sounds good. Okay, well until right, then, well, as I say, feel free to message me. Actually, and listeners can leave me a comment on bartb.ie, and I do generally reply. Usually, it's Dorothy sends me a message, but I do I do reply when people send good, me a message. Good, good. Uh, I can't promise I'll reply within five minutes because I have like real life and stuff, but I won't completely ignore you. I promise. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, this sounds like fun, and we'll see you next week for Taming the Terminal. Indeed we will, and until then, happy computing. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. We are now supported by Patreon, so if you go over to podfeet.com slash Patreon, you can pledge your support to the show in weekly installments. If you don't have money to spare, I understand that. And it would be great if you used our Amazon affiliate links when you buy things on Amazon anyway, and a little bit of money goes to help the show. I love feedback, so please send me email at allison at podfeed.com. And you can join in our Facebook group over at podfeed.com slash Facebook and our community at podfeed.com slash Google+. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.